1: Iron from using Upside to help pay for a vacation later this year.
0: Download the free Upside app now to earn cash back every time you buy gas. Use promo code GAME to get an extra 25 cents per gallon on your first tank. You can cash out anytime write your bank, PayPal, or a gift card for Amazon and other brands. Just download the free Upside app and use promo code GAME for a 25 cents per gallon bonus on your first tank. That's code GAME for a 25 cents per gallon bonus. If you enjoy listening to Quorology, then I need your help. Here's why. I create Quirology by myself on a shoestring budget, recording and editing every episode in my tiny closet. How's that for irony? That's where you come in. Will you help keep Quirology on the air by supporting it financially? By tipping as little as $1 a month, you can help me improve and keep making Quirology every week. All you have to do is jump over to MatthiasRoberts.com slash support to make a pledge and listen away. Hey friends, this is Matthias Roberts and you're listening to Quirology a podcast on belief and being. This is episode 45. So
1: I didn't want to begin my career in ministry hiding something from people because Jesus didn't hide things from people.
0: Jarrell Wilson is a graduate of Austin Presbyterian Theological Seminary, a social media addict and a blogger. He attended Baylor University and graduated from the University of North Texas. He's a proud Austinite, a uh, Reconciling Ministries board member, and a scented candle aficionado. Uh, besides meeting Beyonce, his life goal is to get the Queen of the UK to use y'all in a sentence. <laughs> Oh my gosh. I am so excited to have Jarrell on the podcast today. He keynoted at the Reformation Project last fall uh, with like an absolutely incredible keynote. Uh, If you haven't watched that, it's on YouTube. Uh, Definitely go check it out. It may be one of the best sermons that I've ever heard in my life. Before we dive in... uh, A couple things. Uh, First, like I said last week, if you are in the Lethbridge slash Calgary area in uh, southern Alberta, Canada, I'm going to be leading a couple workshops on May 5th at the Unabridged Lethbridge Conference. Uh, It's a free event for LGBT people kind of at these intersections of faith uh, and queer identities. Uh, So if you're in Lethbridge, come say hi. Hi. Also, last week I released my brand new LGBTQ plus Christian reading guide. It's it's meant to be kind of like the perfect starting out guide uh, for anyone who's just kind of diving into this world, or um, maybe you just are wanting to learn more. Um, it has sections on theology, it has sections for parents, it has sections for faith leaders, it has sections on history. For both gender uh, and sexual minorities, there's kind of two different sections to it, uh, as well as a section on just general further reading. Uh, it has kind of all of my favorite books in there and the books that I have found most helpful on my journey. And uh, I hope that it will be helpful for you all, too. So just head over to my website, MatthiasRoberts.com, uh, and download your copy of that today, right now. Um, we're kind of talking about Jarrell's story today uh, and, and his story of, of what it has been like to go into ministry uh you'll notice in the in the middle of the episode things get a little bit windy with the audio uh you'll you'll hear you'll hear the wind um things clear up after about two or three minutes uh so so just like a little heads up there um yeah let's just go ahead and dive in Jarell hi welcome
1: hi how are you
0: I am doing well how are you doing
1: I'm still kicking by the grace of God.
0: <laughs> I'm, I'm glad to hear that.
1: <laughs> I don't know what happened. I'm just back to Texas. and like, I just, all of my Southern colloquialisms just pop right back. I
0: love it. That's,
1: those are the best. So. <laughs> uh,
0: so to start, the question I ask everyone, um, how do you identify? And then how would you say that your faith has helped form that identity?
1: Oh, Lord. I identify as a queer black Christian. Um, and the way my faith has informed that it's allowed me to put other identities before the identity of Christian, uh, it used to be when I was in my more, uh, Calvary chapel, non-denominational evangelical setting that like Christian came first at the expense of the rest of my life. I, everything I did had to center Jesus or be somehow holier than the person next to me. And I've learned through my faith that it's okay to respect the queer person that is Jarrell Wilson and respect the black person that is Jarrell Wilson and see God in these identities, not just in the identity of being a Christian.
0: Mm. I love that. Like seeing God in these identities, um, Wait, wait, like, what have you found about that? Like, as, as you've gone through that process of kind of diving into those other identities, seeing God in them, like,
1: what does I that look that like? I find that God frustrates me in these other identities just as much as God frustrates me with Christianity. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like uh, when I was a four-year-old child, I was sold this vision that we would come up to this altar, say a prayer. And then God would make our lives the best things that they could possibly be. All you have to do is say this prayer. Uh, Lord, I know I'm a sinner. Jesus died of my sins. He rose from the dead, blah, blah, blah. I give my life to Christ. And you say this prayer and you mean it. And then God washes you in the blood of Jesus because blood is necessary um, for some reason. And you have your life made easy. And that is not at all what happened. And the same thing is true. Coming out, they have this giant series of It Gets Better. Uh, please tell me you remember, it like, the cheesy videos. Oh, yeah. Oh, like, yeah. <laughs> and then it was like, now straight allies are going to do them, too. It gets better. I'm a straight person. I certainly know more about being gay than you do. <laughs> and it's just, like, ridiculous. In, in some cases, yes, it does get better. You come out and you become an Olympian and you get to go on talk shows or Ellen brings you on her show and gives you a scholarship. And for other people, it's like, sorry, you don't get to afford to be trans invisible in the same way that Janet Mock and Laverne Cox are trans invisible. Sorry, you don't get to be as out and proud and loud as Dan Savage demands other queer people be. Um, and so I find that like, just as much as I had to fight for my space in the Christian faith, I'm still fighting for my space as a queer person, uh both in queer spaces and just in the world at large and I'm still fighting as a black person because being black um, while it might look fun and enjoyable in music videos is a little bit more complicated in real life yeah
0: i mean i'm, I'm so I was like kind of in preparation for this, I was kind of watching your um your keynote for reformation project last spring or fall it was in the fall <laughs> yes and, and like you you talk about and i feel like this kind of ties directly into what you're just talking about you talk about in that like like how jesus comes to bring us abundant life not barely make it through life mm, i feel mm-hmm. like that ties in like so directly with what you just said, and I'm I'm curious about that. Like like looking at, especially like as a black man, um, what wh- what does that look like for you? Uh, mm.
1: The way my parents presented blackness um, is very complicated. My parents simultaneously wanted us, me and my younger brother to be proud of being black, to love being black, to love other black people. But at the same time, my parents grew up in an environment where being black meant to be other. And it meant they were in the generation that got bust. Uh, Finally, in the 80s, the state of Louisiana started integrating schools. (laughs) And my parents are in like that first group of kids from Kenner, Louisiana, right outside of the New Orleans airport. They were bussed to this very nice, wealthy white school. And they were, in some ways, treated like the mascots, and in other ways, treated like the villains. And my dad hated his experience there, so he left the state of Louisiana at, like, as a teenager and packed up everything moved to California where he didn't know anybody and just started a new life and then somehow tricked my mother into joining him. (laughs) She (laughs) was in her early 20s. And uh, like then they had me and my mom found Jesus and she's like, Lord, if this man doesn't marry me, I'm going to leave him. And my dad just married her. There wasn't a proposal. There like she overheard the way they have different stories about this, but uh, she overheard him talking to my grandmother saying, yeah, we're going to get married. So you should probably buy a ticket and come on out. And so they got married the summer after my birth and deliberately raised me and my younger brother in neighborhoods where black people weren't present because their fear was if we stayed around other black people, we would be perceived as criminals too. And this shift was brought on uh, by their move to a more evangelical, predominantly white expression of Christianity. Um, and then they sent us to private Christian schools in Southern California. So I was really indoctrinated in a lot of ways to view being black as something that you only do at home and you don't bring out into the world. And it's okay to talk this way and to say these things when it's with the family. Or when you go back to Louisiana, you can stop pronouncing words correctly, like the way that the dominant group pronounces words. And you can finally, like, let your hair down. You can reveal that you have nappy hair. Um, so it was a really interesting way to perceive race. And as I got older, um, it made me feel as if I had lost so much of my life. (laughs) Because I had to box away part of who I am. And the expectation was if you box it away well enough, you get to move forward. You get to have access to things that you wouldn't have access to. And living a life that is abundant is saying, I don't have to box away what God made. God made my blackness just as much as she made my ability to read really long, boring passages and then condense them and make them understandable to regular people. (laughs) Like, just as much as God gave me a deep, yearning to be beyonce or just as much as god has made the sun and the moon god made black people and it is okay to love being black and to see the amazing beauty that came out of such awful circumstances Mm.
0: Yeah, yeah. Like, like speaking of like taking long scripture passages, like you in that keynote again, you you took like the story of uh, the Ethiopian eunuch from the Book of Acts, um, and kind of applied that to the lives of queer Christians, minority people, um, and and you, you focus in on this this question, and you you call it like the haunting question of how. Like the eunuch asks, how can I understand these scriptures if there's no one there to teach me? And, and you tie that into our faith communities. And and I'm wondering like, if you could maybe maybe share like a little bit about that passage and then kind of unpack that a little bit more. Because you made some incredible points there.
1: <laughs> oh, darn. I wish I had my serpent notes in front of me. Uh, so this passage is very special to me. This is also the first passage I preached on in seminary. Um, and intro to preaching, we had basically, we stuck our hands into a hat and pulled out uh, one of three letters and I got the letter that assigned me this passage. And so I got to like go through and pretend like I knew Greek for a second and, uh, to see like what God was trying to say. in it. And one of the things that came up, um, I was reading a study Bible in preparation for the to Preaching Sermon. And there's like one of those little letters. And so I followed the letter that followed the word eunuch. And it took me to Leviticus, everyone's favorite book of the Bible. And it showed that eunuchs weren't allowed to come into the temple. They weren't allowed to worship where other Jews and people of faith that were allowed into the temple got to worship God. They were considered to be permanently unclean by virtue of being eunuchs. Um, An abomination, if you will. So, uh, this eunuch is out in the middle of nowhere, on his way from Jerusalem, where he wasn't allowed to worship with the rest of his faith community. And he's not just any old eunuch. This is like the assistant to the queen. And he oversees an empire. And Philip stops because the Holy Spirit leads him to. And he sees this man, well-dressed, this eunuch, reading Isaiah and saying, how can I understand this if there's no one to teach me? I can't go to the scribes and the Pharisees or the Sadducees. I can't go speak to a rabbi. I'm considered unclean. They're not going to sit in my presence. Where can I go to see God? And Philip, gets into the chariot with him. Philip is a good, upstanding Jewish person, has now exposed himself to that which is unclean, so that he could explain the scriptures to someone who was seeking God. And I just find that to be so relevant to today. Uh, just the, not just as LGBT people coming to the doors of the church and saying who can teach us or how can I understand if no one will teach us not just like uh people of color who are coming to predominantly white institutions but even just thinking about regular students Oklahoma right now has teachers going on strike because they have textbooks so outdated some student just inherited Blake Shelton's textbook from when he was in elementary school years ago and like they're posting pictures of this um, one of uh, people from Oklahoma who I listened to on the podcast, this is The Read, which is incredible. Everyone needs to listen to it. Uh, she is talking about how her cousin, in order to get her homework done in Oklahoma, has to take pictures with her smartphone of someone else's textbook because they're so short on textbooks that are visit, like legible. It's um, incredible that there are students on all walks of life saying, how can we understand if there's no one to teach us? And this lack of desire to teach groups that aren't considered desirable is it's antichrist it's antithetical to the gospel it's a rejection of the image of god and the other so i have a lot of feelings about this passage <laughs>
0: yeah like and and i think like uh, like, in, in that keynote, like, in, in what you're saying right now, like, it, you, you, like, you draw, like, a stark contrast, not not contrast, comparison between, like, the church then and the church now and how things really haven't changed a whole lot in the way that we treat people that we deem as different or not being worthy enough or whatever we want to put on it. Like, it's it's kind of the same pattern. <laughs> like
1: Right, and what's really funny is... So this is another Christian school thing. We had to track the way that the Bible was written. And one of the things that every student would realize after like halfway through First Chronicles is why do the people of Israel keep doing this? God keeps blessing them and then they reject God and then they get punished and then they cry out to God for help and God blesses them and then they get comfortable and then they reject God so on and so forth. And what we fail to do is see that as Christians, we follow the exact same cycle of, oh, well, we're comfortable. We don't need God. We Let's create our own version of Christendom. Let's create our own empire. Because uh, although God promised that God would create this, if we do it for her, maybe God will be more pleased with us. God will be pleased with the way that we have subjugated the world to our will. And... When that fell apart, we did it again with our subculture, and we did it again in the 90s, and we're going to find a new way with these neo-Calvinists, and we have the emergent movement, and we keep doing different ways of trying to earn God's favor, rather than basking in the goodness of the gift of God's grace, and saying, we don't need to strive to be more, or to do more than we have to do, all we have to really do and be as faithful to what Jesus has laid out for us and follow the examples of Jesus Christ, and then all of these things will be added unto us. The kingdom is built not by conquering people or by saying that right prayer, but by living our lives in a way that we shine our light as a city on a hill, so to speak, and we draw people in, wooing them, so to speak, uh, with the love of God.
0: Hmm. And this is, like, I mean, as you talk about that, like, this is work that you've kind of, like, committed your life to. Like, you're, you're a minister, you're a reverend. Like, tell me tell me about that. And, like, I mean, I'm, I'm always curious, as for queer people who decide to go into being, like, pastors, being faith leaders, church leaders, like, that is such a journey for so many people. I'd love to maybe hear a little bit more about that and what has led you into this work,
1: well, I've always known that I wanted to work in the church. Uh when I was like in elementary school, I would line up the neighborhood kids with my children's Bible and I would give them little sermons and then would try and get them all to say the sinner's prayer and I was literally like trying to save the world one door at a time. Uh, I those poor neighbors. Uh <laughs> in our small little suburban Southern California neighborhood just would see me going up and down the street with my children's Bible, and I'm like, You know where you're going when you die. Um, so, going into ministry was literally just like a natural step. I just didn't know how I was going to do it. And in high school, I had like this really powerful moment where I was at the summer camp, of course, and uh, in Dallas, Texas this adult leader decided to come and lay hands on me and pray for me and they're praying for me and of course there are people speaking in tongues it's great the spirit is moving and then they look me in the eye and they're like i think you're gonna make a good preacher and i hear this voice from heaven in my mind to say serve my sheep I'm like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do with this. So I go home, and I'm so excited. Like, God has called me to do something. And I tell my parents, I think I'm going to be a pastor. And my parents' response is, wouldn't you rather be, like, a lawyer or a doctor and make money? Like, you're so good at memorizing facts. Uh, memorize some of these here bones and sinews send, send
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> and make money. And it's funny that you even identify me as reverend because I'm not ordained. So technically I am not a reverend. I just have a master's in divinity and um, have all of the credentials to be ordained, just not ordination itself. I've not made it that far in the process. Um, and so, but I am by my denomination considered a faith leader it's a really weird place to be yeah that's where i'm gonna leave that (laughs) Ah.
0: i'm uh, so i'm wondering like so you're talking about where you are now and i mean it sounds like so kind of talking about like growing up it sounds like you grew up in a pretty like white evangelical culture at least and your theology seems so different than that now and i'm curious what that journey was like for you of, like, stepping into a theology that does affirm LGBT people, and, like, what was that like? Was it a struggle, or was it just kind of natural for you?
1: It took a long time, so, and, but at the same time, it really didn't. So, um I don't know, when I came out to myself, I was, like, 19 years old, and that was a weird time of my life. I had started school at Baylor University and I loved my time at Baylor so 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 much but uh, was challenged Um, this is where I met Shane Claiborne uh, one of my friends in life group at Antioch was telling me about how great he was and that I needed to read one of his books and so I go to a Christian bookstore to find one of his books and lo and behold it's on sale for a dollar so I buy this book and I read the entire thing in one, almost like in one weekend. And by the time I'm finished, Shane Claiborne's there. And so I get to meet him and he signs my book. And I told him, I was like, this is really fascinating. The book is Jesus for President, by the way. I should have said that. So, and this is really fascinating. Um, my problem is, is that, like, I don't think that the church is changing fast enough to adapt to our times. And his response was, would be the change that you want to see in the church, which at the moment, Felt really brilliant until i realized like oh my god he just stole that quote from gandhi <laughs> um, <laughs> but to me at the time i was 18 i was like this is so so radical so i'm i'm just gonna do it my thought was i need to challenge people like brian McLaren for being too liberal i need to challenge even shane claymore on some issues um i still feel the need to challenge shane claiborne but on different issues (laughs) (laughs) because we can't get homie to say that he affirms lgbt people but he'll drop drop names left and right (laughs) (laughs) anyhow (laughs) where was i and so uh, um greg boyd a lot of like these big white we're progressive leaning, but we're not really progressive people. Uh, it was like, these people are tainting the church, and they are trying to lead us to liberal doctrine. And that spring, I wrote this article for the Baylor Lariat, which people can still, if they Google my name and Google Baylor, this will pop up. And it's this vicious article about, with really terrible typos um, about Proposition 8 and that the students on Baylor's campus that were like anti Ken Starr, who was announced to be our president, were really just anti the Bible because the Bible is clear about homosexuality. As <laughs> clearly as didn't, didn't book, or it is. And I said this protest is a sign that they just reject the Christian culture of Baylor University, and they should leave. And um, it was really interesting for me that spring i started reading all of these more progressive writers with the attempt of like how do I, how does their mind work so i can like fight them more effectively it was a research strategy you know um, and my problem was is they were making a lot of sense. and i was like no this can't be right let me go back and check scripture I'm like, oh, wait, they're right. This actually is in the Bible. And so then I was like, well, let me see what other people have to say. And somehow stumbled onto some work by James Cone and stumbled onto like, other black liberation the- theologians and to feminist theologians. I'm like, what the heck is going on? And ended up leaving Baylor because Baylor costs a lot of money, as most Christian schools do. And um, <laughs> I uh, ended up uh, going to the University of North Texas and studying sociology because I liked my intro to sociology class at Baylor. And the more I learned about the disparities of wealth distribution and how difficult it is for people to get decent education and decent health care, the more I realized that this was something that God wanted the church to be engaged in. Like it's not even the book of James is clear. It's not enough to say, be fed brother and then send someone away hungry. It's not enough to say, be well and then send someone off. If you're not there to heal them or to walk with them, through their struggle with whatever it is they're going through. If you're not there to feed them, if you're not there to clothe them, then all you're doing is just like spewing hot air. Anybody can say something on Twitter, but it takes a real friend to show up physically or in some other way that's tangible in the midst of trouble. And that is what the faith is calling us to. And so I went on like this mini, I'm going to be a salt of the earth, Bohemian and we're all going to just like purchase a giant ranch out in Montana and every Christian will just sell their property and we'll all live together just like they did in Axe. And then and then I realized how completely enslaved by capitalism I really am mm-hmm. because I couldn't give up my iPhone <laughs> and I- <laughs> i just can't imagine life without wi-fi mm. and who knows maybe one day we will figure out this christian commune that has netflix still mm. Mm. and when the moment we do i will be the the, the chaplain or whatever <laughs>
0: yeah, i'm there too the community That's, yes <laughs>
1: so yeah baylor university oddly is Really responsible for launching me into my more progressive leaning values, um I should have said this from the get go. Baylor invited Shane Claiborne, who was already going to be in town because he does an annual fundraiser with the church under the bridge um and so Baylor Chapel just like piggybacks and makes a whole thing out of it, <laughs> so I got to meet Shane Claiborne that and then i there I also got to meet Brian McLaren and get to like butt heads with him. <laughs> it was really like just a fun life. All of the, these like big names and faith just came to where I was living at the time. <laughs> How useful at Baylor at that point in my life. Uh, yeah. So
0: like I'm, I'm thinking about that and like that, that story of like going to like a Christian institution and like, fairly conservative Christian institution and having that be, like, the gateway to, into this more progressive world, like, I feel like, I mean, that's my story. I went to John Brown University, which is, I mean, a pretty conservative Christian school in the middle of Arkansas, and, Mm -hmm. like, that was my gateway. Opening up those doors into, like, wait a second, the Bible doesn't speak to these issues the way that I thought it did. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And realizing that we've gotten it Wrong, (laughs) like just just wrong. Um, yeah, Mm. so that and so that led you to. I mean, remind me what denomination you're in, your UMC, (gasps) yes, United
1: Methodists, yeah, yeah. So that led you to the UMC church. So I got tricked into the Methodist church. (laughs) I, um, this is a story that I will tell until I die. I thought (laughs) that I was going into. A non-denominational church. It was called Servant Church, and it just happened to be inside of an old United Methodist church. And I was like, "Oh, how nice! These kind Methodists are welcoming in these young people." And so I go on in, and I meet people. And here's the 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 plug was: it was a Shane Claiborne book release. <laughs> And, uh, the book was Common Prayer. And so I go there with the intention of like, just meeting other Christians who lean, who are leaning in the direction that I was leaning because I was coming from this place that was so different faith-wise than where I thought I needed to be in order to be faithful to what God was calling me to. And so I thought that this would be a good way to meet new people. And it was. And, um, I, I'm still a servant church. I'm right back where I started in 2010 is when I showed up there. And um I met with the pastor, um, Eric Vogt at the time, and I asked him about the church and what was going on. And then he revealed, surprise, it's Methodist. But he's like, but don't be afraid, I know you're not a denomination person, but don't be afraid, I think that you would make really good addition to this denomination. You should give it some thought and do some research. So, um, like the nerd I am, I did some research and read a bunch of books about Methodism and picked up the Book of Discipline, which is our book of church law, which no one should ever have to read. It is um, very lengthy. And uh, I ended up loving the idea that holiness is something that we need to work on both as individuals and together as a society, that God's vision for the world isn't just that we say a prayer and get to heaven, but that God's vision is really a transformation of the world. And a rewriting of the way that our structures have been formed and making things that, making things just and equitable for everybody, um, is something that is holy and it's required for Christians. I thought that was a brilliant presentation of the gospel. And I loved that the United Methodist Church was global. Um, I loved that people in Sub-Saharan Africa and people in the Philippines and people in western and eastern europe all got to come together every four years with a bunch of people from the united states and from all over the western hemisphere and together we voted on what were the biggest issues facing our church and how to pay clergy and standards for ordination that are important to us all because everyone's voice matters um unfortunately um right after I decided to jump on into this Methodist ship. I then re- came out to myself or had this revelation, uh, divine revelation, one could say. That um, yes, lo and behold, I am queer and I am attracted to people that the denomination would not be happy about me being attracted to. <laughs> um, and I remember I waited until I had left and gone to UNT, which is like for people who aren't from Texas, Texas miles are different than the miles that y'all know. Um, I hear in Washington that like driving thirty miles is considered a tri- like a journey. Oh my gosh, y'all yeah. would consider that a long drive. It's a huge um, trip. <laughs> driving thirty miles in Texas could be like your trip to. In some places, your trip to the store. In other places, it's like, oh, I'm going to go visit my friend, and they live on the other side of Dallas. That's a 30-minute drive. <laughs> like, Texas is much bigger than other states. Um But the distance from Austin to Denton, which is where UNT is, is three and a half hours of driving. It's well over 200 miles of distance. <laughs> And so I waited until I had made the drive and settled in. And then I was like, I'm going to send this email to my pastor and to the deacon at my church and tell them that I am LGBT. And I came out as bi. And at the time it felt right, but it really wasn't right. And so then I came out later as gay. And now gay still doesn't even feel right to say. I don't feel (laughs) like... Uh, and then later through queer studies in college, queer became the term that felt most like home for me. And yeah, that's pretty much <laughs> how I ended up in the Methodist Church and how I ended up wrestling with the Methodist Church. Cause like once you come out, you have this choice. Like do you go through Well, I didn't come out publicly. I came out in an email. And it was like, I could go through this process and pretend and say all of the things that I need to say about how I'm going to find my perfect heterosexual wife and somehow everything will be okay. But my problem was, I didn't think that it was possible to do ministry in an effective and meaningful way without being honest. And my problem with so many of the churches I had been a part of in the past had been dishonesty, a lack of transparency, a lack of being able to see the ways in which money was spent and raised, the ways in which power is distributed, And how decisions are made about people's salaries. I left these places because I felt like they were hiding things. So I didn't want to begin my career in ministry hiding something from people. Because Jesus didn't hide things from people. And even just like in that passage, the revelation of what that passage meant was hidden. And the only way for him to get to the root of what that story was is for someone who already knows the secret to tell him. And I didn't want to be the secret that was being kept. And I didn't want to be the heart, like the bearer of secrecy. And part of my call as a black person who has gone to college, As a black person who has a master's degree, as a queer person who has survived suicidal ideation, it's my job to be visible for other people that are coming after me. I need to be in a place where I can engage with younger people who might be thinking I should just give up because there's no hope for me. Like I need to be honest so that they don't have to struggle the way that I struggled so that they don't feel worthless the way I felt worthless so that they see now how great God was at creating them so that they see now how beautiful their queerness and their blackness and their everything otherness really is. Um, and, it, uh, gave the opportunity for a lot of really great allies to show up and to walk alongside me. And it gave an opportunity for the denomination, um, to show how committed it was to excluding LGBT people. And, uh, like I said, I went to Austin Seminary and one of my predecessors was also a Methodist in process in the same annual conference as me, and um, M. Barclay s- suffered greatly because of being out and going through this process. And I followed them, <laughs> followed in their footsteps. And although the conference did not violate the book of law to kick me out as they did with M, um, my process in the Board of ordained Ministry meeting specifically was very um hostile. Like I had never in an interview been accused of sexual promiscuity. Like I had never been accused of pro- sexual promiscuity before in my life. Like I was raised in this evangelical world. I still have my true love waist <laughs> ring <laughs> in my bathroom. <laughs> like, And here is a grown man sitting across the table from me, accusing me of being sexually promiscuous. And next to him is another grown man, old enough to be my father, uh, calling me perverted. And I'm like sitting in this room with a bunch of ordained ministers and people who have sworn uh, that they are going to resist evil and injustice and oppression in whatever forms they present themselves, and these people sat in this room with me and watched me be accused of sexual promiscuity and be called a pervert, and they said nothing and For me, that spoke volumes about the state that the church is in mm.
0: yeah like to 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 be in those spaces of where you are quite literally being attacked um simply for existing and, and seeing like, I mean, you're saying like, you're seeing how committed the church is to exclusion. Like uh, I I can't, I can't even imagine like the impact that that had on your sense of quote unquote calling. Like, I mean, I would imagine, I mean, what did that, like, what did that do? Did that, did you dig in further to that sense of like being called or did it throw you for like, what, what was that experience like?
1: Well, it was really interesting, um, especially the day of, because I came in there ready for a fight. I had literally left deliberate Easter eggs in (laughs) my, my paperwork. We have to write, we have to answer a large number of questions to get ordained as Methodists. And so I think it was like 23 or 22 pages or something ended up being the final amount of paperwork of aim' question and answers that I sent in on top of a sermon, the written sermon, the outline for a Bible study. All of these things are needed in order to prove that you have done your enough of your homework to be a minister. And then the final bit before they vote on you on whether or not to commission you um, is this interview. And the interview lasts for three hours— that's broken up into three sections and you have one hour per section. I, the first section is where I was accused of sexual promiscuity and called a pervert. And then the next section was the one that I thought was going to be the real battle, the theology section. Um, And they didn't ask me any difficult question. In fact, they like signed off on the paperwork and was like, this is so well written. We appreciate <laughs> Uh, how thorough it is! Um, um, I love footnotes. It's one of the things that seminary has. Yes, <laughs> placed in my mind. I hate m notes. Mm-hmm. So I would write something, and I'm like, "Oh, that sounded a lot like a hymn. I better quote it just to be safe." And so I look in the hymnal, and, and stuff. I'm using every book of authority I can find, and none of like my paperwork got challenged. I so I felt. And as I was leaving, all the more vindicated, like, they couldn't find in 23 pages something that they were going to pick apart. But I wonder if that really mattered. <laughs> because as, like, it didn't make me doubt whether or not I was called, it made me doubt whether or not the United Methodist Church had space for me. And, I got really fortunate. I got a great job anyway at Urban Village Church in Chicago. And it was an incredible opportunity to get to do hands-on ministry. And, um, it was really a, like, it was really incredible to go from, like, learning about that how important theology was and learning about how important it is to let people know that, Hey, it's okay to have doubts about this. It's okay to question this aspect of your faith to actually like standing behind a pulpit and doing it and like going week after week after week, just being in the midst of people's lives and watching them plan their families and, decide to baptize their infants or their children making these decisions or uh, couples deciding how they're going to inform their kids about faith, it was really the most affirming time for my ministry because I got to actually just be a minister. And in Chicago, there wasn't really any sort of straight police <laughs> following me around my supervisor in Chicago was out and married to like um this beautiful lesbian couple and they had this precious baby and um not really baby i'd say she's a toddler not even a toddler small child and they all are just like living their best queer lives and i got to like how many out people in ministry get to be supervised by other out queer people it's just like so rare and i got this opportunity and it was great so i don't think that the interview itself made me doubt my call it made me doubt the ability of the church to fulfill its call
0: So maybe to close then, like for people who, like, I, I feel like I hear from people all the time who are in a spot of kind of similar spot of like, I feel called to ministry and yet I don't know that I can do ministry. Um,
1: Mm -hmm.
0: What, like, what advice is someone who's kind of been along this journey for a little while, what advice or words would you have for people in those spaces who are just maybe starting out or even feel
1: that desire to go into ministry? I would start by saying you don't need to be ordained to do ministry. You don't need to go to seminary to do ministry. You don't need to fit into a particular model in order to be doing ministry. And I uh, wrestle with this a lot myself because here I am literally fighting uh, for this opportunity to be ordained. Um, Really, what ordination is, is just like a validation of what you know God has told you. (laughs) Um, A validation by your community and by by your peers um, and colleagues. But I think we can get so focused on that validation it becomes an idolization and it gets in the way of us doing what God has called us to do and the fear of not getting that validation stops us from being who God has called us to be um, so my advice is like first not to get hung up on the how you're going to do it but the why why am I feeling called to do this why am I motivated to move in this way And then when you have your why, the next question should be who. Who am I called to do this ministry with, do this ministry for? And who is going to continue this work if I'm no longer able to do it? And then after you get your why and your who, then it's the what. Like, what is this purpose? And then you go into the how. I just like was I, I just went straight in. Well, the Methodist Church requires seminary, so I'm gonna start seminary right after graduation. And like I made the decision that I think the way most people should make decisions about higher education. I went to the school that gave me the most financial aid. Yes. <laughs> and, <laughs> and Austin Seminary has a great financial aid plan for those of you who are searching and um and thank god it just has incredible faculty as well but i think that like because we're so focused on doing ministry in one particular way it can stop us from even starting the process so don't get hung up on that Mm -hmm.
0: yeah Uh, well Jarrell, thank you so very much for joining me This has been Thanks for having me. Yeah. Yeah. How can people find your work?
1: (laughs) Well, I have a website that may or may not still be up, depending on how bad I am at editing it. (laughs) (laughs) So you can find me at com. I'm almost always tweeting. So at the Jarrell on Twitter or on Instagram, so you can see cute pictures of my dog. Yes. Um, Which... She is the queen. Um, I also uh, do some for, uh, some work for Skew, which is an online magazine, a publication of Level Ground. So you can see my latest article about Radiohead for Skew. Yes, yes. I just love their their sadness. It just makes me happy. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm an Enneagram four. Can I you was tell? just gonna ask. I'm like, you must be a four. Like... <laughs> Their melancholy just speaks to me. Yes. Um, (laughs) But no, um, read the article. You'll love it. It's great. Perfect. Um, Yeah, that's pretty much where I can be found online. Okay, cool. Often in the streets marching in my (laughs) chocos.
0: Oh, yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you. This has been great. You can find Jarrell's blog over at jarrellwilson.wordpress.com, that's Jarrell with one R. Uh, He's on Twitter and Instagram, at TheJarrell. Queerology is on Twitter and Instagram, at QueerologyPod, or you can tweet me directly, at Matthias Roberts. Queerology is produced with support from Natalie England, Tim Schrader, Christian Hayes, and other Patreon supporters. To find out how you can help support chorology head over to MatthiasRoberts.com slash support. A really easy way to support chorology is by leaving a rating and a review. You can do that right in your podcast app or head over to MatthiasRoberts.com review, and it'll take you right there. As always, I'd love to hear from you. If you have ideas of what you want to hear on the podcast or just want to say hi, reach out. I'll get back to you. And until next week, y'all, bye!